Hi folks, and welcome back to What Happened. This is True Crime Chronicles, and it's season two of the show. Thanks so much for being with me. This is episode 26, and this episode is about the murder of Lacey Peterson. If you can remember eight-month pregnant Lacey Peterson and her husband, Scott Peterson, who ultimately was blamed for the murder and wound up being charged, found guilty, and put in jail for the crime. So without further ado, let's get to this case. I definitely remember this case. This case affected the whole world. Eight months pregnant Lacey Peterson goes missing on Christmas Eve from her middle-class Modesto, California home. When I first heard that Lacey was missing in 2002 due to give birth within a few weeks and she just disappeared, I was scared for her and her baby. Right from the beginning, things didn't seem right to me. Her husband and parents were all over the news begging for her safe return. I especially remember her mother, Sharon Rocha. She was beside herself with fear and grief. But this case just had a really bad feel to it. I just knew things were not going to be good. Let's start at the beginning. Lacey Peterson, who was born Lacey Rocha to childhood sweethearts, parents Sharon and Dennis, who owned a dairy farm near Escalon, California, on May the 4th, 1975. She also had an older brother named Brent. Uh, Lacey's parents divorced when she was still very young, and Sharon and her two children moved to Modesto, California. Although she did go back and forth and visit the dairy farm that her father had very often. In high school, Lacey was very popular. She was a cheerleader who had lots of friends. She went on to attend California Polytechnic State University, studying horticulture. Uh, We will return to Lacey in just a second, but let's talk about Scott Peterson for a few moments. Scott was born in San Diego, California on October 24, 1972. He was born to Lee and Jacqueline Peterson, His father, Lee, owned a crepe packaging company, and his mother owned a boutique. Scott Peterson was described as a very outgoing, popular guy, very likable, and he had five half-siblings, but he was the only child of his mother and father, Lee. He grew up playing golf and was very adept at the game, flirting for a while with the idea of even going pro. Side note, Scott Peterson was actually teammates with Phil Mickelson in high school. Yep, that Phil Mickelson, who went on to become world-famous golfer Phil Mickelson. In 1990, Scott enrolled at Arizona State University, where he briefly attended until he transferred to Cuesta College and then eventually to California Polytechnic State University, otherwise known as Cal Poly, where he wound up doing studying business, I believe. Uh, Scott and Lacey met through his job at a local restaurant called the Pacific Cafe in Morro Bay in 1994. Lacey used to frequent the restaurant, and when she met Scott, she gave him her number, and she went on home to tell her mother that she had met the man that she was going to marry. Scott and Lacey began dating and eventually became involved in a serious relationship with each other. By 1997, Scott and Lacey had moved in together and gotten married. There was no indication in anything that I've come across by friends or family 
of the couple that there was any problems at all in the relationship. Everyone who knew them were convinced that they were in love and had no issues at all. Every picture I've seen of the two, they were smiling, happy couple. There didn't seem to be any indications of violence or abuse in the relationship at all. And even though all looked perfect from the outside, this was around the time that Scott began having affairs with other women behind Lacey's back. After Scott and Lacey graduated from university, they opened a sports bar in San Luis Obispo, which they named The Shack. They ultimately sold this restaurant and moved back to Modesto, Lacey's hometown, to settle down. They bought a house on Covina Avenue and Lacey went to work as a substitute teacher while Scott took a job with Tradecore USA. We still don't know if Lacey found out about the affairs that Scott was having or not, but if she did, she didn't mention it to anybody that I have come across and she must have been devastated if so. He was the love of her life. In 2002, Lacey and Scott found out they were going to have a baby. Lacey was over the moon. She had wanted to have babies and raise a family her whole life. Scott also appeared to be elated at the news and acted the perfect doting husband. That facade is what made the Roches trust him completely and believe in his innocence. Even in the face of evidence that was beginning to be overwhelming, they still believed in him. When I no longer did. I remember that. But they eventually turned against him, and that was Scott's own fault. Lacey had been given a due date of February the 10th, 2003, and the couple were just starting off their young, successful lives. They found out they were having a boy, and Lacey named him Connor. All went as normal until Christmas Eve, when Scott reported Lacey missing. And that's when their perfect life and world completely stopped. And that's when I and the rest of the world found out who Lacey and Scott Peterson were. This tragic, beautiful couple. Eight-month pregnant Lacey is gone. When the case broke, this is the info that came out on the news. So, here's the timeline of Lacey's disappearance as we know it. At 5.45 p.m. on December 23rd, that's the day before she goes missing, on 2002, Lacey and Scott go to Lacey's sister Amy's hair salon where Scott got his hair cut. Scott told Amy and others at the salon that day that he was going golfing the next day Christmas Eve. Pay attention to this, folks. This comes in handy in a few minutes. The couple left, and at 8.30 p.m., Lacey spoke to her mother on the phone. Her mother is the last person to have spoken to Lacey before she disappeared. Unless you count Scott. Okay. And of course the person who killed her. Neighbors report Scott knocking on their door on the afternoon of December 24th to ask if they had seen Lacey. Scott told them he had been golfing. Incidentally, Later that evening, he also told another family member of Lacey's that he had been golfing that day. That's the day of December 24th, the day of Lacey going missing. There's numerous people now he said, I was golfing today, and told the day before, I'm going golfing tomorrow. Okay, stay with me now. Scott next called Lacey's mom, Sharon, to ask if she had spoken to Lacey. 
Just before 6 o'clock p.m., Scott Peterson and Sharon Rocha report Lacey missing to the authorities. When detectives arrive at the Peterson home, they notice several concerning things. They find Lacey's wallet, keys, and sunglasses in her purse still in the closet. They also notice that Scott is acting a little off. The lead detective, John Bueller, was quoted as saying, I suspected Scott when I first met him. Didn't mean he did it, but I was a little bit thrown off by his calm, cool demeanor and his lack of questioning. He wasn't, will you call me back? Can I have one of your cards? What are you guys doing now? End quote. So guys, that is always a tip off to me when the spouse or the loved one of a missing or dead person isn't interested in how the case is going. That usually means something. OJ was like that, OJ Simpson, uh, when he was first uh, alerted to the fact that Nicole was dead and asked to come back to California to pick up his kids. He didn't ask how Nicole had been killed. And later on, he didn't try to find the perpetrator, even though he promised he would. So back to Scott Peterson. Scott was characterized by the police that night and in the following days as disinterested, polite, aloof, distant, arrogant. Not traits that you know, are usually the traits of the husband of an eight-month pregnant woman who's gone missing on Christmas Eve. It's just, it's just, it's one thing, it's a little red flag, you know, it's not evidence by itself, but it's a little red flag. So, Scott tells police that he had been at the Berkeley Marina and then out in the San Francisco Bay all day fishing. Let's just stop here for a moment. Now, he had told Lacey's friends and family, and his own, that he was golfing, but now he was telling the police that he was fishing. That's number one. Number two, what I remember thinking at the time this was playing out in real time was, who goes fishing miles away on Christmas Eve, leaving their eight-month pregnant wife home alone? On Christmas Eve. Like, I just thought that was a little, that was a little much. Like, anything could happen to Lacey or whatever, and he's, and this was, you know, really before the days of cell phones and stuff, guys, like, or, I mean, some people had cell phones, but they certainly weren't common. I didn't read anything about the fact that Lacey and Scott had cell phones, so I'm guessing not in the early 2000s like that. Anyway, I think that's where I started to get suspicious of Scott, at the point where his story to the police was that he was gone fishing at this marina way out in San Francisco Bay and left his eight-month pregnant wife home alone all day on Christmas Eve. No family time there? Anyway, the police were also growing more suspicious of Scott. You know, the first suspects in any murder or missing persons case is always the people closest to the victim, the people with the most to gain from the crime, or the people who find the victim. I don't know exactly when Scott became a suspect to the Modesto police, but it likely wasn't immediately. However, it doesn't seem like it was too long after this, especially considering on December 30th, this is just six days later, 2002, a woman named Amber Fry contacted the Modesto police. She reported having an ongoing affair with none other than Scott Peterson. Yes, folks. 
This is the next um, affair that we definitely know about. She gave them all the details of their relationship. This did not help the suspicions of the Modesto police and the FBI. At this time, the general public did not know about Amber Fry, but a free, few weeks down the road, when she gave a public statement to the press and the case shifted dramatically in the public eye and in the eyes of the Roches. After defending him and standing up for him in public, to hecklers, to the media, to the police, the Roaches were starting to turn on Scott Peterson. The police ask Amber to call Scott and have him secretly recorded in a series of calls. In one of those calls, he tells Amber that he's celebrating New Year's Eve in Paris. That night, he was actually at a candlelight vigil for Lacey, being held by her family in Modesto. Okay, so on January the 15th, the Roaches were told of Amber Fry and her relationship with Scott. They were also shown a picture of Scott with Amber. This is when they began to believe that Scott had probably killed their daughter. On January 17, 2003, police confirmed that Scott Peterson had been having an affair with Amber Fry publicly. On January 24, 2003, just a week later, the Roaches give a public statement retracting all of their support of Scott. They also said that he was no longer communicating with them. That was really shocking for everyone you know, following the case. Like, what? The Roaches and Scott Peterson were a, a unit together. They were always together giving interviews, begging for Lacey to come home, begging for if someone had her kidnapped to let her go. And now there's this, there's this public you know, thing playing out with Amber and Scott and the Roaches. It was terrible. Hours later, on January 24th, Amber gave her now infamous press release. I remember watching that on TV. During this statement, she explained tearfully and until she was in extreme stress that she explained she had no idea that Scott was married or about to be a father or any of the rest of it. So, let's talk about Amber Fry for a minute. This was a woman who was told by Scott and their associates when she met him that he was a single man. He seemed totally devoted to her and pursued a relationship with her and even started getting close to her little daughter. Amber had a little daughter. She was a single mom. After she learned that Scott's wife was missing and that Scott was a suspect, she contacted police immediately. She completely cooperated right from the get-go with the police. One of the things she told the police that came out in the trial was that on December 9th, this would be two weeks before Lacey disappeared, Scott had told her that he was a widower, that his wife was dead, and that this would be their first Christmas that he had to spend without her. What the hell is that, boys and girls? Now again, no direct evidence linking Scott to any crime, but the police are very, very interested in this information. As this was going on, the search for Lacey played out. It involved water, air, horseback, bicycles, canine units, hundreds of volunteers and police. They searched everywhere, including the marina and bay where Scott didn't go golfing, the one where he went fishing, you know. The story went global. Every day I watched the news wondering if they would find Lacey. Her due date was getting closer and closer. Where was she? 
what really did happen. So now we're up to Scott's timeline of events, and this is what Scott says happened that day. This is interesting as well, because this is his story. According to Scott, he says goodbye to his wife at about 9.30 a.m. on Christmas Eve morning. She was watching Martha Stewart and preparing to mop the floor and walk the dog in the park. Quick side note. A neighbor testified at the trial that she had seen their dog with no owner at or about 10.18 a.m. alone outside the home. She knew it was the Peterson dog. It had a leash on and she opened the back gate and put the dog in the backyard and closed the gate again so that the dog wouldn't get out. Okay, back to the story. Scott leaves, sees his wife last about 9.30 a.m., right? At 2.15 p.m., he called Lacey and left her a message saying he was leaving the marina. According to Scott, he returned home that afternoon to an empty house, although Lacey's car was there. Their dog, Mackenzie, a golden retriever, was in the backyard with a muddy leash attached to her. This is, now again, all according to Scott, this is what happened. He says he took a shower and washed his clothes, of course he did, and then started calling around looking for Lacey. When the Roaches found out that Scott was out on his boat, they were shocked. What boat? Scott didn't have a boat. As a matter of fact, no one knew that Scott had a boat. It was a secret boat, I guess. Most people tell their friends and family when they purchase something like a boat. Did Lacey even know of this boat? Another interesting fact, right? Rewards were offered for Lacey's safe return. First $25,000, then $250,000, finally $500,000. Lacey's due date came and went. The roaches were heartbroken. Then, on April 13th, 2003, almost four months after Lacey had disappeared, the deceased body of a full-term baby was discovered by a couple walking their dog on the shore of the San Francisco Bay. The media reported at the time that the baby's umbilical cord was still attached, but the autopsy report later refuted this. It said that the umbilical cord and um, placenta were not with the baby. The speculation on the news and online went rampant. Was this Lacey's baby? Baby Connor? Were there any other missing babies in the area? One day later, the torso of a recently pregnant woman was found on the shoreline about a mile away. The head and limbs were missing. On April 18th, DNA results confirmed that both baby and the female torso were the remains of missing woman Lacey Peterson and her baby Connor. The autopsy report contained information that the infant had nylon cord around his neck and a severe cut on the right-hand side of his body. Lacey's body contained no internal organs, and she had two broken ribs, but the medical examiner could not tell if this was post or perimortem. The medical examiner determined that the, bobby, that the baby died in utero and had been expelled from Lacey's body when she died, but he could not determine if the baby had been alive or not when this happened. The nylon and the right side injury 
were caused after the baby was born and likely after the baby died. A cause of death could not be determined for Lacey based on the remains found. Meanwhile, the police had placed a tracker on Scott's car. They feared he would cross the border into Mexico. During the search of Scott's boat, car, and home, detectives found hairs belonging to Lacey and a pair of pliers on his boat. They found homemade anchors made with concrete, the remains of a 90-pound bag of concrete and concrete residue in the boat. They also found evidence that Scott had made five anchors, although none of them were found on his property, and they believe he used those anchors to weigh down Lacey by the head and limbs, which would account perfectly for the torso missing its limbs and head to have arisen up from the bay and eventually floated out to the shore. You might never find anchors with limbs and a head attached in the San Francisco Bay. According to experts who testified at the trial, the current is so strong in the San Francisco Bay that there's likely nothing left there. Of course, Lacey also washed up in the same bay that Scott had been fishing in on Christmas Eve. Scott was arrested on April 18, 2003. His dark brown hair had been bleached blonde. In his car, the police found $15,000 in cash, Viagra tablets, survival gear, camping equipment, several changes of clothes, his and his brother's driver's licenses, and four cell phones. In a, in a time when no one had cell phones. I mean, this is, I mean, even now, four cell phones, right? The items were perplexing, and detectives believed that he had been planning to disappear himself. They believed he was about to cross over into Mexico when they apprehended him. On April 21st, 2003, Scott was charged with two counts of murder, and he pleaded not guilty. He hired attorney Mark Garagos, that's a famous attorney. Amber Fry was represented by another famous attorney, Gloria Allred. The trial began on June the 1st, 2004. It consisted primarily of circumstantial evidence. There was no direct evidence linking Scott to his wife's murder, but there was an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence. I remember thinking at the time, there's a mountain of it. I mean a mountain of it. Sometimes you can overlook the fact that there's no direct evidence if there's a mountain of circumstantial evidence. The boat and the anchors and the affair all came out. The lies and Scott's odd behavior, the things he said to his friends and family. He stood to gain $250,000 from Lacey's life insurance. The prosecution brought up evidence of the couple's debt and Scott's appearance changes. Scott had also contacted a realtor to sell the home and he had traded in Lacey's vehicle while she was still missing and not dead. The jury also heard the secret tapes between Scott and Amber. On November 12, 2004, after nine days of deliberation, the jury found Scott Peterson guilty on both murder charges, one for Lacey and one for Connor. The jury recommended the death penalty and the judge agreed. Initially, Scott was sentenced to death by lethal injection on March the 16th in 2005 in California. 
which means life anyway, considering it's California. You could live to be 100 years old on California death row. If they didn't kill Charlie Manson, they aren't going to kill Scott Peterson. In, and in October of 2005, a judge ruled that Lacey's $250,000 life insurance policy money should go to her family and not to Scott. Then on August 24th, 2020, this is now just three years ago, folks. I mean, this is like an 18-year case, appeals after appeal after appeal. After another appeal, an appeals court upheld his conviction but reduced his death sentence to life without the possibility of parole. So now he's not even on death row. Scott currently resides at the Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California, after serving a stint at San Quentin. That must have been fun for Scott. This may or may not be the last you hear of this case, but the Los Angeles Innocence Project have since taken up Scott's case, and they believe him to be innocent. One of the reasons for that is that on the day of Lacey's appearance, and this did come out in the trial as well, there was a break-in at a house in the neighborhood, and speculation was that that could be related to Lacey. Maybe she saw something she shouldn't have. There was also a burned-out van connected to that case somehow that contained a bloodstained mattress uh, that was tested with, like, I guess no results or results that weren't, that weren't clear, I guess. Um, however, the actual criminals who did the break-in talked to police about the Lacey Peterson case to clear themselves of the suspicion. Um, I believe the mattress is something that they want, the Innocence Project want to retest today. It's old evidence, but I believe they want to retest it with today's technology. I guess just, you know, trying to throw whatever at the wall and see what sticks. Um, the, the guys that did the break-in in the house up the street, they knew they were thieves, but they didn't want to be deemed kidnappers and murderers. So they did talk to police and denied every, anything about Lacey Peterson whatsoever. The police have never stated that there was a possible connection to that crime, and they have not found any evidence to date to link the thieves with Lacey at all. The Innocence Project have been trying to get Scott Peterson freed ever since they took the case. I guess we'll wait and see what happens there. That's yet to be seen. To date, Lacey's other remains have never been found. Well, folks, in the case of the murders of Lacey and Connor Peterson, that's what happened. Join me next time for the next episode in this season. Until next crime, this is True Crime Chronicles.